I have noticed a tendency in my life, and that is uh, that I allow for sins that I commit to cause me to commit more sin. And I found, for example, when I yell at my wife or I mean to my wife that I have a greater tendency to lust after women that I see, just to be open and honest with you. And I've noticed this trend not just in me, but in in people in general, and I've seen it uh, in people that are addicts to something, and they're trying to break an addiction, and then they give in, or they do something that they know is not good, and then the next thing they know, they've completely given in to that addiction, because I think it helps to erase, or ignore, or make disappear the guilt that we feel inside of us. And I think that some people get locked into sin. They get locked into doing things that they don't want to do, that they consider wrong because they've already done something that they think is wrong and they just do something else that they think is wrong. And I'm guessing that if you stopped for a minute and you thought about it a little bit, you would find that this is true in you, that when you do something that you deem wrong, wrong, for some of you that God deems wrong, then it has a tendency to make you do something else wrong. We see it in, in like when you say you're just digging a deeper hole, you know that phrase, and, and sometimes it's like that, like we just keep digging and digging and digging by doing things wrong and doing more things wrong and doing more things wrong. We were driving up to Eagle Fern with Bryn, my wife's family, uh, last week, and we're headed up to hang out with them, and I was with my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, and we were talking about some pastors that are famous that have done things that we would deem horrendous, and and we just, the question was like, how how could they possibly have ever got to that Point. How could they have ever fallen so far from where they originally were and done things that are so hurtful and so harmful and, and, and really just seemingly so out there that it doesn't even make sense? And as we talked about it and discussed it, we, we just talked about how it, it just is step after step after step after step. And then a person gets to a point where they look back and they're doing things that they they never thought they would ever do. And in my life, because of times when I've given in to sin more frequently and I've taken steps, I have come to the conclusion that there is, there is nothing that I could not do. And it has actually helped me be gracious towards people because I think sometimes we who are Christians, especially, we look at certain people that do certain things and we say, oh, I could, I could never do that. And what I've learned just by examining my own life is that I could do anything. Uh, it doesn't matter how heinous, how evil it seems. I could do it if I allow for myself to take steps to get to that point away from doing the things that I believe in, the things that I think are right, the things that God wants me to do. And if you have things that you look back on and you, you regret and you think, wow, that was terrible and I can't believe I ever got to that point, I bet if you examined it for a minute and you thought about it and you processed it, it wasn't like you just woke up one day and did something so regrettable that, that you still haven't forgotten about it. I bet that if you took some time and you analyzed the process, you would see that one wrong choice led to another wrong choice led to another wrong choice. 
true in the Christian faith. It's true for people outside the Christian faith. We just sang a song that talked about being in the water and keeping our eyes above the waves. And that is nice and I love that song. And if you, if you think of it in one way, it's totally accurate. But if you think about it differently, it's just untrue because sometimes we can't get our eyes above the waves of our sin. I mean, sometimes we sin and all of a sudden the consequences and the downfall from it is just in our face and we're like a person that wears glasses that now has water in their eyes and you can't see anything. You can't remember how to make a good choice or what process led to you being in this place or how to get back to the place that you wanna be in. It's nice to think, you know, my eyes are above the waves, but sometimes even the smallest sin throws us into the water and we can't see above it. And whether you're a Christian or not, here's what I believe about your choices. Satan uses that when you can't see the next right move and he uses it so that you do the next wrong move and you get in deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think... In Jonah chapter 2, we see the solution for this kind of process that is so clear, I think, in many of our lives where we do one thing and then another thing and another thing. We see a process that I think helps with fixing marriages. And if you look at certain marriages and, and, and you were to talk to the people about their marriage and, and you would say, wow, it doesn't look like it's very good and you're talking to me about how it's not very good. How did you get here? Nobody would ever say, you know, we woke up right after our honeymoon and we just started yelling at each other. And, and all, I mean, we woke up the next day and we hated each other's guts and it's been like that ever since. You would see one time going to bed angry, another mistake made without an apology, a little bit louder in the conversations, a little bit more angry. You talk to people that are in prison, that have killed people, and I would guess that they would not tell you. I woke up one day and just thought, man, killing is for me. I mean, that's the way that I, I dreamed of living my life when I was eight years old. Someday I'm going to be a killer. They would tell you that one decision led to another decision to another decision that put them in jail. I just got an update on a, a person that I used to play basketball with when I was a, a little kid, and uh, and his dad was actually my coach for a while, and, uh, and he is in prison until we, he's about my age, are over 50 years old because he, he killed somebody and he murdered somebody, really. And the truth is, if I were to go back in time and, and you could meet this young kid that I played basketball with, you would say, respectful, nice, cool kid, fun to be around. And I can tell you the truth, one decision led to another decision that led to something bad. He made one choice that was bad and it led to another choice that was bad and he's in prison till, till I'm almost ready to retire. Last week we ended chapter one in Jonah in verse 16 and I'll catch all of you up. We talked about how the story of Jonah is about being engulfed by grace, God's grace. And last week, we didn't see that in the person of Jonah because when we ended last week, Jonah had run away from God, literally tried to get out of the presence of God because he didn't like what God had to say. 
And so Jonah is on a boat and a storm comes and it's a terrible storm. And they realize the only way that the sailors on this boat are going to be saved is to throw Jonah overboard. And so Jonah, at the end of our story, like a good cliffhanger, is thrown overboard and we're left waiting. Verse 117, still in chapter one, this is what we read. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the most famous fish ever. He's usually called a whale, but he's like, I mean, one of the two probably most famous whales or fish that the world has ever known. And I wanna say this ahead of time. There are stories real life stories recorded in history of people being swallowed by giant fish and surviving in these fish bellies. It's been recorded a couple times in history, it seems, where people have found live men that have fallen overboard and been swallowed by fish. And this is a sad reality, but Christians feel a need to point to these stories and say, look, the story of Jonah and the whale is possible because we have historical evidence that suggests that this is possible. And I just, I just wanna pause right there and say, that's the stupidest thing Christians could possibly say about the Bible. Yep, everything in it is totally possible apart from God. The point here in this whale, this fish swallowing Jonah is not that it's possible in our our regular natural sense. The point is that God uses a fish to save Jonah's life. We don't need to search for stories to prove that this could happen or can happen or does happen. We simply need to say, no, 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 no. God's grace was poured out on Jonah And he sent, notice the language, the Lord provided a huge whale in order to go swallow Jonah. This is not a natural event. This is not a lucky event. It's not like Jonah's trying to swim around and, oh, there's a shark, but oh, good news, the whale got me. I mean, this is God taking care of Jonah. In the book Moby Dick, which is probably the second most famous whale that's ever uh, been in existence, and that is a fictional whale, but the second most, uh, there is, I don't know, who's read Moby Dick in this room right now? Okay, I've, been, I've made it through 13 chapters and about 5,000 pages of Moby Dick, and, uh, and it's crazy the detail that are put in, and uh, my brother-in-law Matt was actually explaining to me at the time they were paid per word, and that made a lot more sense after he told me that, based on what I'm going to tell you in just a second. And in the story, it's not even a story yet, the first 13 chapters. You're following a guy around, he's looking at rooms and boats, and that's about the first 13 chapters. So now you can skip to chapter 14. Uh, it's beautifully written descriptions, but that's pretty much the 13 chapters. And in chapter 9, our character, Ishmael, goes into a church. And you would expect an author to say like he listened to a sermon. But instead, we get all the whole sermon. I've actually looked at it and kind of analyzed it and I think it would be a 10 to 15 minute sermon if I was going to preach it out loud. And the full thing is recorded for you right there in the story of Moby Dick. But he does a really good job while being theologically inaccurate in that sermon uh, of kind of giving some descriptors to what Jonah might have experienced. And I just wanna read you, I will throughout my sermon read some parts. This is what he says. And now behold, Jonah taken up as an anchor and dropped into the sea, when instantly an oily calmness floats out from the east. 
And the sea is as Jonah carries down the gale with him, leaving smooth water behind. He goes down in the whirling heart of such a masterless commotion that he scarce heeds the moment when he drops seething into the yawning jaws awaiting him. And the whale shoots to all his ivory teeth like so many white bolts upon his prison. And so Jonah, floating in the water, not knowing which way was up and which way was down, not being able to see above the waves, is swallowed by a fish. And in Jonah 2.1 it says, From inside the fish Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And I say, I would have too. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's so difficult to pray when it's comfortable, right? I mean, when I try to pray in my bed, I'm asleep instantly. When I try to pray in my house, I'm confronted with a bunch of distractions and one of them is just the distraction of laziness. But if you're inside the belly of a fish, then you're going to pray. And Jonah, for the first time in this book, and you would have thought it would happen on the boat, you would have thought it would happen Earlier, for the first time in our story, Jonah prays to God. He talks directly to God. And this is what I want you to notice. Going to read a big chunk of this in its entirety, but there's two things I want you to notice. The first is that Jonah says the word I 10 times in verses 2 through 9. And seven times in the same span, he uses the word me. On first glance, this story is going to look like Jonah, completely, utterly changed man. He has it all figured out and all fixed, and now he is perfect and he is repentant and he is in a good relationship with God. But if you pay attention to the eyes and the me's, you can quickly see that Jonah, still in the midst of this belly of this fish, is pretty self-centered. It's what got him into the problem in the first place. God said, hey, go and preach to the Ninevites. Jonah said, the Ninevites, they're evil they're an enemy to our people. If I help them and I preach to them and they repent and God doesn't hurt them, then my nation might go down. No way, God, I care too much about myself to do what you want me to do. And he runs and he gets in the storm and he ends up in the fish. And in the midst of this prayer, you see that, that while Jonah has, has taken some serious steps towards fixing his disobedience to God, towards fixing his bad decisions, he is not a perfect man. The other thing I want you to, to notice, especially in verses two through six, is the theme of going down and being brought up. It's a theme that continues even into the next chapter, something we'll talk about next week. But, but we know that in life, and especially in our spiritual lives, there are only two ways we can go. We can go down because of our bad decisions, or we can go up where we are making good decisions and we are being pulled towards God's ways, towards the presence of God, towards the grace of God, and towards obedience to God. Now, even if you're not a Christian, if you're not a, a spiritual person, I, I want you to know that that is the same truth. I mean, you can notice it in your own life that you are either going down, you're going the wrong direction, you can't get your life on track, that's how people say it, or you are headed the right direction. You are doing the right things. You are going in the right ways. Here's what Jonah 1, 2 through 6 says. He said, this is Jonah, in my distress I, distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. 
You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. Now there's an important part of this that cannot be seen very well um, from our English American mindset, and that is that this, these verses, two through six, are in a chiastic structure, which means nothing to most of you, uh, but it means that the, the, the section is written to kind of flip-flop on itself, and if we were to say it this way, it goes point A, point B, point C, point B, point eight. See that? It's like a mirror of itself in this passage of Scripture. And here we see that this is a chiastic form of poetry. It's something very, very common in Hebrew literature, actually. And in the very middle of it, point C, we find the most important point in, these, in this poetic form. And right in the middle, what we see is Jonah's faith. He says, I have been banished, but I will look again. At your temple. Hebrews 11.1 1 describes faith as this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. And assurance about what we do not see. And what I want you to notice right from the beginning. Is that the separation between going down in this life. And going up in this life. Is your faith in God. The thing that is in the very center of going down and going up. Is whether or not you have placed your faith in God. I'll come back to this, but for some of you in this room, that means giving your life to Jesus. It means becoming a Christian. It means accepting that the, the story of the Bible, which is that people are sinful and fallen and they are going down. But Jesus came to die on a cross so that those who believe in him and place their faith in him might go up eventually to heaven. And we see in this, this first four or five verses in the middle of this chiastic poem that Jonah's faith is placed in the center of going down and going up. And I say to you, for some of you, you need to place your faith in Jesus so that you can stop going down, feeling the guilt and the struggle of sin, making and committing other sins, doing wrong things, things that you know somewhere in your heart you don't even want to be doing. You need to give yourself to Jesus, place your faith in him so that you can head the other direction. But there are those of you in this room that are more like me who have been Christians for a long time. And you find that with every sin, you continue to go the other direction. And you think, if I could just get my eyes above the waves, if I could just see more clearly, if I could figure all this out, then I could get my life on track. And the Bible does not tell us that Jonah found a log or he figured out how to swim better or he remembered the life vest that was under his cloak and he put all the pieces together and then God decided to save him. It doesn't even show us that Jonah makes all the right decisions in his mind. God, I will totally and utterly love you and do exactly what you want for the rest of my life and I will, I will for all intents and purposes be perfect from here on out. Sorry about that one thing where I ran from you. It simply declares that Jonah placed 
places his faith in God. He says, God, I'm going down, but I know that you, even through death, will raise me back up. I think one of the reasons that we go down and down and down and down and down is that we just swim harder. We look around for something to float on. We just give our best effort And all that does is make us feel guilty about not being able to do the things that we want to do. And so we just just keep going down and God is looking at us saying, no, no, no. Let's start at the right place. And that is faith in me. Faith that I am the one who will bring you back up, not you. When we are placing our faith in ourselves to bring ourselves back up, when we're playing that game like, well, I did something wrong, and so if I can just do five good things, then I can erase the guilt inside of me, and then I'll be going the other direction. You probably know that feeling, right? Like, if I can just fix enough stuff, then I can pay my penance, and everything will be okay. I- I'll fix it, and I'll be okay. It's not going to work. You're just going to feel guilty. You're going to keep going down. This chiastic structure, this poem that is Jonah chapter 2 is meant to say, no, no, no. If you want to go back up, you say, God, Jesus, I know that you are the one that can pull me in the right direction. Man, there's this, but you, Lord, my God statement right here. And the Bible is littered with these, but God statements. Bad things were going to happen, but God. God. Genesis 8, 1. But God remembered Noah, who's stuck in an ark at this point, and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. But God remembered Noah when he was stuck in a boat. Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's a verse stated by a man named Joseph whose brothers had sold him into slavery. And he says, you, to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God, but God. Acts 2, 23 and 24. This man was handed over to you, talking about Jesus, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Romans 5, 7, 8, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 7, 6 and 7. This is Paul talking. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. You see, when you're headed down, when you're headed down and you just think, man, I've done one wrong thing and I've done another wrong thing and I, I'm trying to erase the guilt and to feel better and to start going the right direction, you can... You can keep swimming or you can look and say, but God is the one who saves, who takes us the right direction. The story continues, Jonah 2, 7, 8. This is his prayer continuing. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. 
Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. The word remembered has theological implications in the Old Testament. is isn't just like, hey, God exists. I mean, yeah, I remember. Like, you remember for a test? It actually is a word that signifies a, a, a change in, in your mind that leads to a change in action. Deuteronomy 18, 17, and 18 says, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God. Remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as is today. It's not just about like these people remembering that God exists, that God provides for them, because they would have already done that as Israelites, as Jewish people. I mean, they would have been in the temple on the Sabbath day and they would have remembered God in intellectual sense. This is like recognize who God is, give God worship because of what he has done, remember God. The word repentance in the New Testament is used in a very similar way. It it actually means a change in mind that leads to a change in action. It's like doing a 180 as as it's been described before and will be described again. It's like saying, God, I know that this isn't what you want. I know that this isn't about, uh, this isn't things that you're about and that you want from my life. And so I'm going to change my thinking on this issue. That what I want and what I'm doing and what I'm thinking about is wrong and I'm going to make my best effort to go in your direction. And he prays this prayer and says, God, look, I have faith that you are the one who can pull me in the right direction. But I want you to know, this is repentance, I want you to know that I recognize I have been going in the wrong direction and I, by your power, will do my best to go the other way. And notice that Jonah sees and recognizes that his prayers of repentance have gone to God. And this is something that I think we forget. Sometimes we fail to understand. People go, man, my prayers aren't getting to God. I don't know if God's listening to me. I don't know if I've done too many bad things for God to care about me anymore. And Jonah, in the middle of an ocean, apparently God was pretty upset with him. He had tried to flee his very presence. says, I know that my prayer of repentance, my prayer of remembrance has reached you, God. You see, oftentimes, and this is a sad reality, in the church especially, we have this mindset that, that we, we have faith in God and God will pull us this direction, but we also have this mindset that says we need to feel really, really sorry about the things that we've done. It, it doesn't say anything about that in the story of Jonah. It doesn't say like Jonah's sitting there in the belly of the fish going, Man, I just feel so guilty, God, so now I know you'll forgive me. Now I know that you're going to hear my prayers of repentance. It simply says that Jonah says, look, I I get it, God. You're powerful, you deserve my respect, and I will do my best to serve you. You see this downward spiral going deeper and deeper into the things that we don't want to do? It comes, I think, because we think somewhere inside of us that we need to feel sorry. And the truth is, if you have placed your faith in God, if you have given your life to Jesus, you need not feel sorry. I give you full permission. 
I give you full permission to never wallow in your guilt anymore if you're a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, you have tons of guilt on you and you deserve every ounce of that guilt because the only way that Christians don't have guilt anymore is that Jesus took all of the guilt and and died on a cross. It was nailed to a cross in the person of Jesus who was God in human form. And so our guilt, our bad feelings, all the difficulties and and, kind of stuff that we deal with when we mess up was paid for by Jesus. If you're not a Christian... sorry. Like you need to feel guilty every day until you do become a Christian. In fact, I think it's one of God's greatest gifts to humanity, this feeling we call guilt, because we know, you already know if you're not a Christian, that you need to do something because you've never felt forgiven and peace and joy about that one thing that you did 15 years ago. Even you've never felt like it can just be taken away from you. And you're right until you give your life to Jesus. And I hope that that guilt gets stronger and stronger every single day until you say, Jesus, I need a way out of this guilt. I give my life to you. I accept the gift that you have given me on the cross. But if you're a Christian, Jesus already did it. He already suffered for all of those things that you feel. And God does not call us to feel sorry. He calls us to repentance. God did not make it so that Jonah needed to be thrown overboard so that Jonah would go, man, I really feel guilty about this. He did it so that Jonah would say, God, my faith is in you. I I understand that you are powerful and you deserve my respect and, and I will make an effort to do what you want me to do. I get it. It's a change of heart. God is not looking for your guilt. He's looking for a change of heart. And we see that in Jonah. He remembers God, and he prays to God. Now, I want you to notice verse 8 again, very important. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Jonah is engulfed by God's grace because he places his faith in God, and he repents. That's it. And this is the tagline of our series is engulfed by grace. And Jonah is like engulfed by grace as he is engulfed by a whale in the middle of an engulfing ocean. And Jonah is forgiven, but he includes this little sentence. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. The subject of verse 8 is those who guard or serve vanities of worthlessness. In Psalm 31, 6, we see the words combined, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. Worthless is lies, deceit, futility, and it's used of things that are false. And here's the big hang-up in all of this. I think the thing that causes the problems between going down and going up is that some of us want to grab a hold of things that make us feel better, but don't actually save us. They don't actually move us in the right direction. And so we go this way and and we go, man, I've sinned and I feel guilty about this, but guess what? This thing makes me feel a little better. This woman or this drug or this, this addiction. It makes me feel better, or all this money, or all this fame, or all this coolness, or all this respect by my peers, or this nice car, and this nice life, or the American dream. I mean, I, this stuff makes me feel good. And Jonah's point is simply this. 
when you're going down and you, you look and you go, man, I want to go that way. The very thing that can keep you from the love of God is trying to wrap your arms around a bunch of things that will never save you. And there are so many people who might even think that God is real and God is right and God is the answer, but they will never repent. They will never give their lives to Jesus because they're swimming around in an ocean of idols and they're clinging to the things that make them feel good. All the while, not being saved from the things that make them feel bad. Jonah says, there's a thing, there's something that can prevent you from the engulfing grace of God. It's not God, he'll love you no matter what you've done. It isn't that you've done too many bad things. It isn't that you've gone too far, too deep. It isn't that you are surrounded by the waves of the consequences of your life. You know, it's not that. It's that you're trying to grab onto things instead of giving your life to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm going to do it your way. I know there are Christians that sit in front of me right now. You go, wow, I hate what my life has become I hate the things that I'm doing. And God's saying, place your faith in me. You go, well, I've done that. I, I believe, God, that you're the answer. It's like, okay, repent, turn around and, and, and give me your life and, and say, God, I, I get it. This is sinful. This is wretched. I want to I come towards you. I want to I be going in the right direction. I want to be going up and not down. God's like, okay. You're like, but one more thing. I'm not willing to let this go. I'm not willing to let go of this thing. (laughs) And all that's happening is these things are acting as anchors, pulling you deeper and deeper into this ocean of consequence and guilt. Man, Jonah Jonah doesn't have any idols with him. This is really interesting. He doesn't have any idols with him. And he may not even known about the idols of the sailors. And the only time we see idols in the whole book, uh, at least in the first two chapters, is when the sailors are repenting and they're, they're throwing their idols into the ocean. And so many believe that Jonah actually just includes this line for those who would read the story later. When he's writing this story down and he's telling about his prayers, he's actually just putting this in there for you and I saying, by the way, God saved me from drowning in an ocean, literally. And he wants to save you too. Faith and repentance are the keys, but there's one thing that can prevent you from being engulfed by the grace of God. Simple. Clinging to things that cannot save you. It's clinging to things that cannot pull you up, but only will anchor you down. Jonah 2.9, but with shouts of grateful praise, with sacrifice, excuse me, let me start again. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. This is a Thanksgiving offering that would have been a celebration in the temple with a meal and individuals would come and they would give public testimony about the things that God had done for them, and, and then Jonah says the thing that God had done for him, and he declares salvation comes from the Lord. This may be the very key line of this entire book. Salvation comes from the Lord. I just ask you, where are you trying to find your salvation? I mean, what are the things that you are clinging to? 
Are you swimming, saying, if I can just fix everything and do everything right, then, then I will be saved? What are the things that you are trying to save yourself with? Because if it's not placing your faith in God and repenting, saying, God, I give my life to you, my life is yours, then nothing else will work. My professor used to say about faith, you can place your faith in pink elephants when you're drowning all you want, but they're never going to save you. They don't exist, and even if they did, they wouldn't get you out of an ocean. And the reality is you can place your faith in anything you want. Go ahead. People talk about that all the time. It's just what I believe in. I don't care what you believe in. What I care about is what will save you. And what will save you is faith and repentance as you move towards God. This book is here to declare that salvation comes from the Lord, that God is waiting to engulf you in his grace. But some people will swim and swim and swim or cling to worthless idols and they will never receive that engulfing grace. And then we read the end. Jonah 2.10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The word for vomited uh, is a word in the Old Testament that is used when the author is intending to disgust the readers. Like it's supposed to be a, a gross word and some translations to kind of nicen up the Bible, I guess, try to uh, use spit or spew, uh, but that's not good enough. I mean, hurl would probably be a better word. Uh, if I could take you back to the Super Bowl uh, about uh, a year ago, there was a party and a Super Bowl party at my house and everybody got extremely, extremely sick. And my friend Kevin was leaving the next day. And so he came back over to our house so we could take care of him. And what happened in the bathroom would be the word that, that would be perfect for uh, what this Hebrew word would be translated as. I mean, like, like demons were coming out of Kevin, it sounded like, and like he was dying, and I mean, it was, it was terrible. In fact, I took him to the doctor, and we got into the doctor faster than anything I've ever seen because Kevin made a great decision. If you ever like hurt your leg and you need to get in quicker, he went into the bathroom and he started making this noise, and boom, they're like, hey, wheelchair, we're taking you right up to the doctor. We can't have you disturbing patients. So if you sprain your ankle and it really hurts, just go into the bathroom and start vomiting loudly. They will get you right in. That's the word that's meant here. And I describe all of that for you because it's important to understand this passage of Scripture. Uh, Vomiting is, is this idea of punishment in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18.25, even when the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. God is using this word for punishment, for repercussions from the people's choices. And when we see Jonah pop up on the land, come spewing out of this fish is mouth, we're not supposed to say in our heads, oh, that's awesome. It's warm, it's sunny, he's sunbathing now. It's so happy. We're supposed to get the idea, the concept that this is gross. I mean, Jonah does not come out pearly white. He does not come out clean. He comes out a little bit gross, a little bit disgusting. 
And when it comes to sin, when it comes to going down, oftentimes we want a quick, easy solution. We want the Christian life to kind of feel like, man, I'll make a decision, I'll become a Christian, and I'll never do anything wrong again, and everything will go right. And as Americans, we want everything to be really linear. Like, okay, now I've accepted Jesus. Now I'm going to fix this problem. Now I'm going to fix this problem. Now I'm going to fix this problem, and someday I'll just go to heaven. But the Christian life is not like that. The Christian life is one of waves and billows and storms. Vomit and consequence. It's one that can be very difficult. It's one where we will oftentimes, oftentimes do stupid things that we didn't want to do, but we chose to do anyway. Things that we knew God did not want us to do, but we chose to do anyway. And sometimes we're going to come out of it looking like there's vomit all over us. But we will always come out saved if we place our faith in Jesus and we repent, giving him our lives. Man, I think that the world and ourselves and Satan just wants to say, but if you go back now, I mean, think about what the people will say to you or say about you. I mean, if you go back to that church, I mean, think about what they'll think given all these decisions that you've made wrong. I mean, if you try to get your life going in the right direction, think about all the stuff that's going to come up from your past now. I mean, think about how bad it's going to be when it's all fixed. You're just going to look bad. Everybody else is going to look good, and you're not going to be clean because you've failed, and you've messed up, and you've been pushed down, and you've been to the depths of the sea, and you've experienced the consequences of your actions. And so don't. Don't go that way. Because you don't want to stink. You don't want to look bad in front of all those people who look good. And this is the game we play with ourselves. These are the games and the, the mindsets that prevent us from being engulfed by God's wonderful grace. We try to swim around on our own. We grab onto worthless idols or we sit around worrying about what we might look like or feel like when we come to the other side. But God is saying, just do it and you can go up. You can be brought back from the pit of the grave, from the, wet, the belly of the whale. You can be brought back from the things that you don't like about your life. Don't try to fix everything. Don't hold on tight to anything. And don't worry about what it's going to be like when you get to the other side. Just place your faith in Jesus and repent. And I know, I know, there's so many people that that aren't Christians because they're worried about coming back to the land. They're worried about being safe with vomit all over them. I mean, they're worried about eating their own words, if you will or what their friends that aren't Christians might think of them, or all the times that they've mocked God or mocked Christians and thought poorly about them, and what that's going to look like and sound like when they express those things to other people, or what God might think of that later on. And God is just going, I want to save you, man. I want to save you. 
And there are others of you in this room that are just doing things wrong and you can't break free. And I'm, I'm going out on a limb and saying, you can't break free because you're clinging to something. You haven't let it go. You're trying to swim around on your own or you're worried about the outcome when you come out from the other side. And so even if you have faith in God, you won't repent and you won't say, God, I give you everything. I'll do what you want me to do. Take my life. Make it everything that you want it to be. I just, I just worry that you're going down because you won't let God engulf you in grace. And you might say, well, God would never, God would never, God would never, and you're blaming God. Or, man, those Christians, those Christians, those Christians. God's like, don't worry about it all. Just focus on me and giving your life to me and everything will be all right. In the book Moby Dick, we read this, Shipmates, I do not place Jonah before you to be copied for his sin, but I do place him before you as a model for repentance. Sin not, but if you do, take heed to repent of it, like Jonah. Hebrew poetry is awesome because it mixes up moments of despair and expressions of faith all together. And you read the Psalms, go read some of the Psalms and you'll be blown away like, God, I love you. God, why can you, why are you doing this to me? God, I will worship you. God, you have turned your back on me. Sometimes it feels like that. I mean, we don't like that because we're Americans and we don't think that way. It's like, I gotta do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. That's not the Christian faith. God was not, God is not American. Jesus wasn't American. It's messy, sometimes disgusting, sometimes scary, but place your faith in Jesus and repent. This section of Jonah is actually used as a metaphor in the New Testament for Jesus. Jesus is talking to a group of people and he says, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah because Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. And so Jesus looks at these people and says, Jonah was a type, he was a metaphor, he was an example for me. And if we learn anything from Jesus using Jonah as a metaphor, as an example, what we learn is that Jesus is the answer to going down. And this morning, I just encourage you that no matter what you've done, no matter what you feel, no matter what you have going on in your life, if you are going down, Place your faith in Jesus and Jesus will pull you back up. Do not allow for yourself to get locked into sin, to be drowned in your own sins because of a feeling of guilt, because of worthless idols, because you worry that someday you may not look as good when you come out of it. Don't allow for yourself to swim around saying, I'll fix this, I'll fix this, I'll fix this. You're never coming out of the ocean. You're never gonna get your eyes above the waves without Jesus. So for each of us in this room, even when we take the slightest step downwards, we go, man, I shouldn't have yelled at my wife today. I should not have yelled at Bryn today. And we go like this. You have a choice in those moments. Focus on the waves that you've created, the consequences. Cling to your worthless idols of pride. No way I'm gonna tell Bryn I'm sorry. You know how often I wrestle with that one. No way that's how, this is her fault. 
There's no way. And I cling to this idol and, and I go, well, now we're mad at each other. So what does it matter? I already messed up this day. I literally say that to myself. Well, I already messed up this day and, and I swim in it. And man, if I say I'm sorry, then we're going to have to have a conversation. I'm feeling pretty tired right now and I just want to go to bed. Let's just take another step this way. Or I shouldn't have yelled at Bren. God, I know you're the one that can get me out of this, that can make this a better day, that can fix what I just did, that can make Bryn feel whole again, that can allow for me to pour out my grace instead of my wrath. I repent. It's much better that way. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are the one who can pull us out of the storms of the oceans that are the consequences of our sins. Lord, I know, I know. Because we have people with addictions, God, in this church, I know that that their mindset is often one of, I'll take another step back because I took this one. There are people, God, who aren't here. There are people who don't even go to our church and some that don't go to any church anymore because they made one bad decision that allowed for them, caused them, moved them to another bad decision that moved them to another bad decision. And their lives are engulfed by the waves at this point and not by your grace. Lord, I pray you'd change that. I pray this sermon would find them on the internet. I pray that you would help them to place their faith in you and repent, God, of what they have done. For those of us who are here that love you and are Christians, when we sin, God, let it not lead to other sins, but let it lead to faith and repentance, deeper faith and repentance. And God, finally, for those people here who don't know you as their Savior, who are not Christians, I pray, God, that they would figure out that spiritually speaking, they cannot go the right direction without being engulfed by your grace. Lord, I pray that they would give up the worthless, totally worthless idols. I don't, there's so many, God. I mean, there's so many things that people try to make themselves feel better with. Some of them aren't inherently bad, God. They're just bad when we cling to them for salvation. I mean, education, God, wealth, sex, drugs, music, a better family, another kid. The list goes on and on and on of worthless idols that people cling to for salvation. I pray for people, God, listening, people here that are clinging to those idols or they're trying to swim their way upstream to mix metaphors, God, back into favor with you, back to the right track, God. I pray that they would give it all up. They would just cry out, I'm going down, but I will look again at God because of his death and resurrection on the cross. Jesus, thank you for your engulfing grace. Thank you for offering us the gift of salvation. It's incredible that you would give that to me. It's incredible that you would give that to any of us. 
Let us always seek you, even if we come out with a little vomit on ourselves, God. Let us always seek you and move towards you. In your name.